listening to the Age Tech Podcast, the show that brings you the movers and shakers of the Age Tech ecosystem with your host, Karen Etkin. Hi, Gerontechies. Welcome to another episode of the Gerontechnologist Podcast. This episode is the second in a series about aging and age tech in Japan. My guest today is Debbie Howard, the chairperson at the Carter Group Japan Market Resource Network. Debbie has lived and worked in Japan for over 35 years and founded Japan Market Resource Network, JMRN, in 1989. Debbie translates qualitative research into clear strategic direction for international clients and over her career has worked with most major brands that have entered Japan. Previously, she served as president and chairperson of the American Chamber of Commerce in Japan and continues to serve as president emeritus. She's also a former caregiver on a mission to change the way the world looks at caregiving so that the impacts are not so devastating. Her work is focused on providing corporate programs that support working caregivers so that companies can minimize the related risks of absenteeism, employee turnover, and escalated healthcare costs. With the launch of MAI and the caregiving journey at 2016, Debbie brought her market research acumen to the world of caregiving. Her first book, The Caregiving Journey, targets individuals and goes far beyond the basics of logistics, wells, and funeral plans. Her second book, The Caregiving Crisis, is due in December 2021 and targets companies with practical ways forward in terms of supporting their employees and also service caregivers. Welcome, Debbie. Thank you so much, Karen. It's wonderful to be here. You spent most of your career working in Japan. That's quite a long way from Texas. How did you get started? Well, thank you for asking. I was actually raised in South Carolina, and I was working in Atlanta, Georgia, and I had worked about nine years for a major Fortune 500 company in corporate communications. But I was a little bored, and I had a best girlfriend from childhood who was living in Japan, in Tokyo, as a travel writer. And she was sending me these tantalizing letters about the Far East, and I became really uh, charmed and needing to take a gap year at 31, and so I did. And because she was in Tokyo, I started in Japan, and I was going to do a one-year trip around the world, and I never left Japan. <laughs> It was so exciting wow, to me. And and I yeah, and I and I got a job there right away. I didn't anticipate that. I was gonna just fool around if you want to know the truth. They kind of say that you can run but you can't hide. And I was there for about two months and I started dabbling around interviewing and I got a job with McCann Erickson, which was joined at the time with Takohoto. So I went to work for a market research agency of a large ad agency. In Tokyo. Wow, that's quite a start for your career. So since you've been working in Japan for decades and you've been helping major companies enter this market, what would you say is the number one misconception foreigners have on Japan as a market? Well, uh, I think most people who are listening will know that Japan is uh, famously difficult, not just the regulations, but also the consumers are very tough. And I think what surprises me over and over again, and I've been working in the market for 30 years, is how surprised foreigners are at how different Japan is. 
So it's kind of like they come in with their briefcases, especially the Americans, and I can say that because I'm an American, with their briefcases, and after one week of appointments, they'll be going, we couldn't sell anything. We didn't get an order. And I'm laughing, actually, because it, it, it is such a difficult market. And so to to imagine that Japan is going to be anything like your home market is a big misconception. In in what way is it different? Like, what do people find so overwhelming? Is it like the culture? Is it the language? Is it the food? Well, the language and the food, the language you can use an interpreter. If you use a good one, you're going to be okay. The food is fabulous. If you're into food, that those are both different things. But the culture is what's so different there. So, for example, in Tokyo, especially, it's it's all form and little substance in the early days of meetings. So you'll be spending hours in these meetings talking about things that you never thought you'd have to talk about and having questions that seem ridiculous to you from your home country's viewpoint. Uh, I think another real interesting difference is that I see very large companies, even large famous companies elsewhere in the world, come to Tokyo or Japan and nobody really knows them or trusts them. And they have that mentality of being, you know, I'm a big company. I'm not going to name any names, but I'm a big company and we're famous in the world. But actually, the Japanese people don't, don't know them. And I'm talking about end users, whether they are consumers on the street or B2B type consumers. So what you're actually saying is that international brands don't necessarily have the same brand recognition in Japan. So they come in with like their head held high and they basically get uh, bummed out by the way that the, no one is perceiving them as like the big shots in the room anymore. It can be pretty disappointing, Karen. I mean, imagine, for example, I'm just going to name Facebook, for example, is huge everywhere else in the world. And it's in Japan, but it is not as well used in Japan as it is in other places in the world. And there's a homegrown version called Line in Japan, L-I-N-E, that's much more prevalent among all age groups than Facebook is. Coca-Cola is another example. It's it's not a Pepsi who is the competitor in Japan. It's all the plethora of other, not only soft drinks, but tea drinks and all kinds of other things that are put out by large Japanese trusted manufacturers who pump products down through the channels and own the distribution. So, you know, it's just a different ball game. And that's why I say that. Now, remember, I'm a market researcher, so <laughs> I, I'm prejudiced to tell you to do your homework. But Honestly, if you went to another market, if, if I came to Israel, I would want to do the homework on Israel so that I would understand your market. I don't really know anything about Israel. So I would be thinking as a person, uh, as a person who has a lot of experience in a market that's difficult to understand. My first job for me in going to another market would be learning the landscape. How is it different from my own market? Where are the problems that I might not have thought of? And that's, uh, that's often solved by doing a lot of good research and homework. You probably don't know what you don't know. And if you're a total uh, novice to a market, like where do you even start? So 
Exactly. From your experience, what does it take for foreign companies to actually make it in this market? Is there one particular thing that all companies, all foreign companies that have made it in, in the Japanese market have in common? So what we say at Carter JMRN is that building trust, establishing trust, and then building that trust is the most important thing that a foreign company can do. Obviously, if, if people are not aware of your company, you need to build up that credibility and brand awareness. And, and again, the trust, the trust factor is, is very important. We know that one of the reasons Japanese consumers believe in technology and trust technological innovations, for example, is that they can, they've seen Japanese companies actually deliver products that work. And so there's an inherent trust and contract with the consumer there. And so foreign companies need to establish that trust as well. And I would, as a second uh, side of that, though, I would like to say you don't do that by being Japanese per se. You have to embrace your foreignness because you will never not be foreign in Japan. You will always be a foreigner. Even if you learn how to eat with chopsticks and you look pretty good doing that, <laughs> everyone knows that you're a foreigner. There's no way to get around that. And so you need to embrace that and use it. Use it to your advantage. McDonald's is an example of a foreign brand that has become almost assumed to be Japanese by little little children, for example, who have grown up seeing it, they don't question that McDonald's is foreign. Many, many they, There are research studies that show that many kids think McDonald's is a Japanese thing. And, and even the sport baseball, there are some people in Japan that think baseball originated in Japan. <laughs> but of course, we know it didn't. But it takes years to get that kind of um, traction. And we would not recommend that. We would recommend just admit who you are and what you are and use that to your advantage and bring in the credentials and the evidences of how you are successful elsewhere in the world. And the third one is to reset the agenda to, to your strategy. So understand the landscape, understand who you are. This is kind of like personal branding actually, and use that being authentic to reset the agenda and, and create your strategy and your game plan rather than playing someone else's game plan. That is excellent advice. It really is. So uh, you recently published a white pair of paper, an excellent white paper, white paper, I might say, about age tech in Japan. I will put a link to it in the show notes. Everyone should definitely read it. So what are Thank some you. of the unique characteristics of the Japanese age tech ecosystem? Okay. Well, one of the, one of the most important factors is that 30% of Japan's population of 128 million people is 65 years or older. That is the highest percentage in the world. The next highest would be Italy, right on Japan's heels, coming up on 20%. The US is 15% by comparison. And most of the developed countries are somewhere in there, 15, 16, 17. There's a little bit of variation. The Asian countries are coming along as well, but Japan having 30% of its population at 65 or more is, is an amazing opportunity there just to look at aging and caregiving in a society. I think within that ecosystem, 
if you will, we have an aging population that is very young at heart. So if we compare Japan's aged population to, let's say, the United States, we will see uh, better quality of life. We will see more active older people riding bicycles and doing things, even working later in life. We have many, many people in Japan who want to work till they're 75 and 80 even. They're also exercising three times a week and doing brain training and things to keep their, their minds fresh. So I think the proactiveness of the Japanese people, especially the aging population, keeps them very young, giving them a quality of life. I think another factor is the financial stability. We have less division between rich and poor in Japan, so a much broader middle class and many more older people with security and no worries about money as they get older. And that's very, very different than many, many countries in the world. I'm not saying we don't have problems in Japan. I'm saying that there are many fewer problems than other places in that, in that financial area. And the third one is open-mindedness about technology. Because we have 30% of the population over 65, everyone has seen the impacts of aging and they have felt that in their families. We also have many of the elderly being taken care of at home and in family settings as opposed to outsourcing the care. And that means that younger people also see their grandparents aging and they understand the impacts of that. So we have a, a very high and open-mindedness towards technology because we know we need it. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And speaking of, of technology and being open to adopting technology, I've heard it said before that because the Japanese culture is so open to technology, Japanese older adults tend to be more accepting of technology that Westerners might be slightly squeamish about, like humanoid robots. So what are some of the other cultural differences that need to be taken into account when developing tech-enabled products and services for this market? Well, one of the most important things that I'm hearing uh, over and over again in focus groups and in ethnographic interviews is this idea that if I use something too soon, I may weaken myself. In other words, I don't want to have a crutch because it's better for me to suffer and struggle and try. And I'm sorry to say that, but the Japanese are very stoic. And so I'll give you a good example of that. I heard a 72-year-old woman the other night in a focus group saying she had given up her walking stick recently because she felt she was becoming too dependent on it. And she thought that using it, she rationalized that using it would actually weaken her. And... So she, she decided she would tough it out. Now, we can all argue about whether that's true or not, but I'm just saying that's a reality I hear over and over again. Let's say pre-pandemic when people would be going to the grocery store and they would go to the grocery store in Japan maybe three or four times a week because it's more of a small store, fresh food type culture. And we proposed some robotic solutions where they wouldn't have to go to the store and they could order and have it delivered or they could have the robot actually go to the store and pick things up. They did not like that. 
because for them, and, and I'm again, I'm talking about 75, 80-year-olds, that was a social thing for them to go to the store. And it, it for them, they got exercise, they got social neighborhood exposure, and it was kind of fun. It was like a field trip for them. And, and so I think when we're developing technologies for Japan, we need to remember that certainly in positioning and marketing things, we can address this, this issue of not becoming a crutch and not weakening them. But we, we, we need to just keep that in mind that people are very much of the mindset that if I do it myself, I will stay strong and it'll keep my mind strong and my body strong. Does that make sense? It makes total, total sense. And I totally get why going to the grocery store would be a social experience and why people wouldn't want to give that up, especially if it's like this one time of the day when they actually get to go out and talk to another human being. The, another thing we picked up from the focus groups and ethnographics is that in the West, we don't want cameras in our homes. We, 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 we have a resistance to being monitored. The Japanese people, older people, and, I, and I'm, we're never saying all of anyone, we're saying they tend to. They tend to be very open-minded to being monitored because again, the penetration of the aging problem is so great. They've seen news stories about, their, about other people who have died alone. And so they see the camera and the monitoring as a way to prevent that. So that's a second thing that is quite different from the United States or other Western markets. And the third one I wanted to mention is that onboarding users to use anything. It doesn't even have to be technology. The Japanese love instructions and a lot of detail and information. And so anything we can do when we're developing technology for Japan to help the user in more more ways than we help them in the West will go down well, not only with the aging people, but their caregivers. All the challenges of aging are pretty much universal. That also comes across yes, they from are. your report and from your research. You mentioned Japanese older adults being more accepting of monitoring solutions because they realize that they might fall in their house and no one will notice. What are some of the more innovative solutions that you have seen emerge from Japan and uh, that could apply in international market? Well, this is one of my favorite subjects and it's, I'm going to give you some foundational differences that really are the big things that we need to address systemically in a lot of our other cultures. So Japan has a great national healthcare system. And of course there are some really interesting things that Uh, happen in terms of support for in-home care through that healthcare system. But because, um, maybe, maybe partly because of the penetration of the aging population, Japan has done a wonderful job educating and building awareness among aging people about staying physically active, staying mentally active, staying socially involved with different generations. And that is something that we see over and over again. I mean, we see individuals taking responsibility for their physical and cognitive state of being and, and preserving that and maintaining that. And I don't think we see as much individual accountability, at least in the US. I'm not gonna speak about other countries, but 
I, I, we see a lot of lifestyle diseases in the States that we do not see the prevalence of in Japan. Again, we have them. We just do not have them to the same degree. Obesity is not a problem in Japan the way it is in the States. Diabetes, heart disease, lots of the things that we see that cause older people many, many problems over the years to come and impact quality of life are not as much of a factor in Japan because they've done such a great job of education and awareness building. And there is that individual accountability. And I would even go so far as to say that Japan is not as ageist a society as we have in, in the U.S. For example, in the U.S., everything is Young, 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 young. And I can tell you I felt that myself. But in Japan, old age is revered and respected. And older people are taken care of in a different way. They're not outsourced to an assisted living place or a nursing home. They are taken care of in the home. Some of that has to do with penetration problems of assisted living and that sort of thing. But that cultural underpinning is there. And, and I think that's, that's uh, a very good thing because it keeps the older person in a family setting. Traditionally, the oldest son in Japan would be the inheritor of everything. The, the other kids don't get anything. The older, and some of these are changing, but I'm talking about traditionally, the older son would get everything. And the reason is that they would take the, the parents home at some point when they get about 65 or 70, they will raise it and build a new dwelling for that original older family and the nuclear family of the older son. So the older parents live in the house there and you have an intergenerational living situation. The penetration of multi-generational households has definitely uh, lowered over the years because of the growth of the nuclear family. And we are seeing more assisted living facilities and that sort of thing in Japan. But culturally speaking, keeping the family together, which is the old way that we used to do it in the West, has been, I think, a, a contributing factor to uh, something very good in Japan. For, for the aging population. But we also know that many, many of the aged population in Japan live independently. So they may have their own apartment, but they may live, let's say, two blocks or within one hour of, of a child who will be helping them and visiting them on a regular basis. And we, we these are not strange concepts when we talk about Western countries either, but I think in Japan, it's, it's more well penetrated. And so that's not exactly innovation as you uh, have asked the question, but I think it's very important to understand that systemically that kind of thinking and that kind of viewpoint is a very positive thing for an aging population. This is really fascinating. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your methodologies that you've developed at the Carter Group. So if I'm, an HTEC entrepreneur, and I want to bring my product to the Japanese market. How should I go about it? How, how would I go about doing like even the most fundamental market research into figuring out whether my product will work in Japan? Well, we, we, of course, each client has a, a little bit different approach and 
we don't have a, a one size fits all, but understanding the landscape of the market, for example, is a very important thing. So you may have a product that is sold through government in another country, but thinking you're gonna to come to Japan and sell it to the Japanese government right away is probably not realistic. And, and so we would wanna look at the landscape of competitors and near competitors in your space understand the key points that are better about your product and not, we would probably recommend not only doing um, secondary research, which is looking at existing things and the environment, but also taking the client out on what we call market safaris, where we go and look at different aspects of Japanese society so that you can see how it's different from perhaps in your home country. And I'll give you a really good example. This is one that everyone loves in Japan are the convenience stores. So, you know, when we think about convenience stores in the States, have you been to one in the States? Yeah, absolutely. Multiple times. I love them. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, well, wait till you see the ones in Japan, okay? Because they have adapted to consumer needs. First of all, they're on every corner because Japan is a walking and train society that people have cars, but they don't use them for commuting to and from work. So in a non-pandemic world, for example, you'd have a lot of people commuting an average of an hour a day by train and walking an average of 10 to 15 minutes from the train station to their office. And these convenience stores are on literally every corner in the neighborhood where the person came from and in the work neighborhood. And they have adapted to being like almost like lunch boxes. So you can buy fresh food and salads and all kinds of things in convenience stores. And they noticed something about, I'm going to say five or seven years ago, they noticed that whereas the original target for the convenience stores in Japan were young people, suddenly there were many more older people coming in there. So they literally changed their offerings to target their customers for that neighborhood. And some of them have put in um, talk, like lounges where the older people can come and hang out and socialize in the convenience store. Yeah, I know, I saw your eyes. It's really interesting and fascinating. And so, you, you know, I think just to understand and see that that concept in practice is, is a really interesting phenomenon. It's also interesting to see how, for example, rehabilitation therapists work with their patients in things like senior daycare centers and hospitals and assisted living facilities. So we, we can go out, for example, and look at the equipment they've got, how sophisticated it is, how they're interacting with the patients. We can go into the homes for ethnographic interviews and we can see things like, we can see the floor space is super small and that sometimes there are really narrow, steep stairs to get up and down. We can see the difference in the living space when we go into the homes. So these types of things are very important for clients to see for themselves. It's not just us telling you that we need to take you out there and show you what's going on. And then you can see your robot footprint is not going to fit in there. You can see that <laughs> you'll be redesigning the footprint really fast. And so there's some really interesting things like that. I think mostly for us, it's about 
taking the client into the world of Japan and letting them see how different it really is through not only the home, but the shopping and the experiences, the fitness centers, because everything is more constrained there than you might have in your home country. Sounds fascinating. And I, I'm sure it has like immense value to, to your clients that you bring them and, and sort of immerse them in the culture and in the physical world, their potential users or customers live in. Because from what you're describing, I've, I haven't yet visited Japan. It sounds like a really different experience than what we're used to in, in the United States or in Europe. We would Honestly, love to show you around anytime. Well, post COVID, it's definitely on my top, on the top of my destination list for the post COVID yes. travel. So mm -hmm. on a, on a different, but related topic as the founder of aging matters and the author of the caregiving journey, uh, are there any differences? between caregiving in the U.S. versus Japan? Yes, I think there are some, some pretty big ones. One is that the, the aging population of Japan is almost double that of the percentage of the population in the U.S. So we also have, of course, many more people needed to support those, those aging people. We, we've, so the, just the magnitude of the problem is, is a big difference right there. I think another big difference is that the percentage of caregivers in the workforce is slightly higher in Japan as well. And that's a natural, a natural factor of that. We have about 30% of our population in the workforce in, in the U.S. as caregivers of 50 plus. In Japan, we think that's probably about 35 to 40%. We don't have as good a statistics as in Japan, as we do in the States about the workforce, but we know, we know what's happening with the population. So we can make an educated guess at that. And I think one of the other things, one of the most dramatic differences is that the average age of caregivers is older in Japan. The average age of a caregiver in Japan is 65 compared to 49 in the US. And that is also an interesting function of that younger lifestyle and quality of life. So the average Japanese person doesn't need help as soon as we do in the States. So what we end up with is an older aged average caregiver. Which has its own challenges, I'm sure, because as people uh, grow older when they're 65 and they need to become physical caregivers, for an older parent, that is that has to be more challenging than it is if you're 40 or 50. Absolutely. And we have in Japan what we call some of the oldest old taking care of the old. So we'll have a 90-year-old wife taking care of a 92-year-old husband. And they will hide their troubles from their kids because they don't want to be put in an assisted living or nursing facility. They want to stay in their own space as long as they can. And so, you know, there's a lot of covering going on there. <laughs> if somebody has Alzheimer's or early dementia, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of covering going on. And that's a huge burden on the caregivers as well, as you can imagine. And, and, and I think on the part of the care receivers, there's acknowledgement that they need help, but as long as they're husband or wife is helping them, they have a false sense of security, actually, 
about how much help they really need. And I have one other statistic for Japan that's really interesting, and that, you know, we have a lot of discussion in Japan about women in the workplace and why we don't have more women in the workplace. And we know that the lack of childcare support is one of the big problems in Japan. And I think there's a misconception that most women leave the workforce because of childcare responsibilities, but actually statistically 38% leave due to lack of elder care support and only 32% leave due to lack of childcare. So the elder care responsibilities are really even more of a reason why women have to leave the workforce. Wow, that is mind blowing. Wow. It is. I was I was so shocked. I just found that statistic last year and it blew me away as well, Karen. Absolutely. Speaking of caregivers in the workforce, your upcoming book, The Caregiving Crisis, is about helping companies with practical ways forward in terms of supporting their employees who are also caregivers. Can you tell us a little mm -hmm. bit more about your book? Sure. Most of the research of the new book is focused, like the old book, in the US, and that is strictly because I don't speak Japanese and I knew it would be easier and cheaper for me to get the research done by myself if I stuck to the English. But everything that I do has a global scope to it because of my experience in Japan. And it's a natural thing that I'm very, very interested and passionate about. So we do talk about the global situation, but we use the U.S. as a proxy for that because the numbers in the U.S. are very, very good. We know that 30% of every workforce in the United States are caring for 50-plus. If we include those who are caring for kids, so parent caregivers, we're talking 50% or more of a workforce in the United States. But let's just stick to those who are caring for elders if you will. And the cost of that to U.S. businesses is $68 billion annually. And that will more than double over the next 10 years. So the costs are related to turnover because many caregivers, a third of all caregivers, have to actually leave their jobs at the ends of their caregiving responsibilities because it becomes so overwhelming they can't handle a full-time job and caregiving at home. We also know that there's absenteeism and effects on productivity, and there's also future healthcare costs because we know that when you're caregiving, you end up emotionally and physically and often financially depleted after caregiving is done. So that costs companies money in the future because of those healthcare issues. So the book is all about that. It's, it's all about you're losing money, please do something to help your working caregivers. That's what the book is about. And I'll tell you how to do it. I'll tell you, I'm telling you how to do it on your own and what outsourced services and solutions are available as well, should you decide to use those. And when is it coming out? Um, it's coming out in December. Fingers are crossed. It may be January, but I'm hoping December. I'm shooting for December. Yes, I'd like to end the year like that. And it, it's really a how-to how book. I, I should also say that one of the really interesting things we know about the workforce in America is that the caregiving issue, this, again, adult caregiving, is affecting all age groups and companies of the of the. 48 million working caregivers in the United States, a quarter of them are millennial aged. And then we also have many Gen X aged 
caregivers who are ending up in the sandwich caregiver role of taking care of their kids at home and an aging parent. So when we add all of that up, and of course, caregiving doesn't have any prejudice. It hits everybody the same way. So all ethnicities, all genders, and all age groups are impacted, some more than others. But uh, when companies are looking at their workforces, this, this is a really important thing to look about, look at for the future. Absolutely. Debbie, it's been such a pleasure uh, talking to you today. Again, is there anything else you would like to add? No, I, I'm so excited to, to be on your podcast, Karen. Thank you so much for inviting me and let's do it again. It's a continuing uh, story that is really developed so much during this pandemic, this prolonged pandemic, because I think many of us have seen the really negative impacts on aging people who are living alone and get isolated and also on their caregivers. So it's, it's both ways. It's, it's, a very, it's a very interesting and fascinating area. And I, I know that you've dedicated your life to it. And, and I, I'm really happy to, to be talking with you today. Thank you so much, Debbie. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this session of the Age Tech Podcast. For more Age Tech content, visit thegerontechnologist.com and subscribe for updates. We'll see you in the next episode.